Welcome to Ask the Pros, where I do my very best to unpack actionable, valuable insights and with the goal of helping you live your dream life. I sit down with top entrepreneurs, professionals, making a difference around the globe so they can tell their stories. In doing so, I aim to inspire and motivate other people that may be struggling or looking for a new spark around their personal life or career path. It was nice chatting with you the other time, you know, we got deep into it, you know, but obviously we want to narrow this down because I, I know you have a lot to say, you know, <laughs> you have a lot to say, but we have to, we have to kind of like narrow it down to, you know, starting by your story. And from there, we're just taking it from there, you know, which, okay. which, which totally, under, which totally, you know, I agree to, you know, so even on that note, you know, I welcome you to ask the pros, you know, where we speak to professionals entrepreneurs you know and i know you're you're a mentor you're a speaker you know you're yeah yeah director of a film festival right yeah <laughs> and you're all of that you know and, and i know you're going to bring a thing or two to this show that would benefit you know somebody out there you know if i, I always I always say this thing if, even if it's one person you 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 probably impact you know that's that's on that that's that, that's that's good for me you know that's enough for me right. and i and i know you're gonna you know get that today you know so yvette welcome to the show Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So on this show, we we start. We always start from the beginning, which means you know, telling your story, your journey. You know, sharing that with us. You know, how that started. You know, for you, how did that really start for you? You know, I did not like school. We can start with that. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like. You didn't like school. Why? Why? Why didn't you like no. school though? Why? What, what, what oh, was the? It was not. It wasn't that I did. I loved learning. When I first started skipping school, one of the ironic things was. I skipped school to work on my own project. So I would spend the day at the library. Um, but I would turn in my assignments beforehand. Um, if I had a test to take, I would come early and take it or take it the day before. So a little bit of planning, you know, we just get planning involved. Um, but I had other projects, things that I wanted to do. And um, I didn't, I guess to be honest, I didn't see a lot of value in what they were doing. And I didn't feel that I needed the teacher. I can read the book and do the assignment and turn it in. And if that gets me, you know, a B, I was cool with that. I was in advanced placement and honors. So I felt that it was a few teachers did bring this up with me. I guess I'll, I'll put it that way. And what I when I graduated from high school, that's a good place to start. <laughs> um, I had skipped a lot of days and um, I had miscalculated some tardies, which and three tardies equaled one absence. And so they had been in this in two specific classes. So those two teachers called me aside um, a day or two before graduation to tell me, to inform me about this. And I pointed out to them that I'd already been accepted to all of the schools I'd applied to. And um, I did not advise them to tell my mother at this late date that they suggested that I not walk and graduate over an absence. Um, because first question is going to be, why wasn't she notified? And nobody had an answer for that. Um, and the other point that I made was if I got into school, my grades are good and I didn't need to be in your class to get those grades. What does that say about you? Yeah. Um, and they, I guess, basically agreed with me and we let that go and I graduated and went on about my life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so I was an art major and, um, at that point there weren't any black people in the art department. 
that's a school that was the same school my husband was at when I met him. So I met my husband my senior year. And so at that point, we started living together <laughs> um, after I graduated. The night I graduated, okay. I left home and then I came back and asked my mom if she would give me money so that we could live together. Um, and so we did. And um, I was not happy in school. It was a, it was better than high school and elementary school. I never really fit in in elementary and high school. I guess that was part of it. Um, and what was required to kind of maneuver socially, you know, in high school and that sort of thing. Um, uh, by the time I got to my senior year, I think I just decided it, was, it really wasn't worth my time. And so I didn't really spend time with people from school. I was hanging out with uh, uh, a former teacher of mine that I, I used to babysit for and his friends. <laughs> and so I would like go to, you know, poetry readings because there were a couple of writers in the group and their dinner parties and sort of hang out with them and always hang out with people my age when I was like clubbing, you know, I mean, they were fun to go, you know, going to parties. Yep. But otherwise, it didn't really, um, if you want to skip school and hang out with you, you're going to be in the library studying you know, like everybody thought that was like really boring. It was either that I would just lay out and like just watch the sky and I guess daydream about my life when I got out of, you know, got out, got away from those people. And, um, so anyway, so when I was in college, uh, was it really like a friendly place in terms of, um, my professors? Uh, students were fine and just as a specific example. Um, I was a painting major, and so the person that I had for an advisor was the head of the painting department. But he really just gave me such a hard time. And I didn't like to draw faces, and so he made a point of it, of like really chastising me. And so one Friday, we did critique on Friday, um, six or seven of my friends did the same thing. We got together, we all drew each other, and we all drew each other with our heads turned. So none of us had faces, but he still only yelled at me. And so then when somebody else said something about that, he threw us all out of class. And so this went on for a while. Um, and when my money was running out, I really had to think about whether or not I wanted to get a loan to continue this. Um, and I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. David asked me to marry him. So I was like, okay, let's do that. And um, we moved to Atlanta. And and also, I had like a couple of commission paintings. You know, I sold two pieces. So I didn't really feel that I needed them. Um, the teachers or the professors that I liked were all visiting professors, and they were leaving. So then there was like not even a professor that I liked anymore, and I didn't see it being a good use of money. <laughs> so um, I left, and I continued painting for a while, but it got really hard as I had more kids, like traveling and trying to do okay and stuff like that. But my mom and my brother and my husband and my dog at the time of Rottweiler and um, would all travel with me. And my brother and my husband were like my crew. They just like kind of test what they do. And yeah, um, after that, and that sort of thing, my mom walked it through. Um, and the dog just kind of hung out with us. And it just got harder when we had you know, a new kid. And um, yeah. that's what it took a back to for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in in the course of, I, I know you, you you say you didn't like school, you didn't even want to be there, you know. But were there other things you were interested in, like things you you could easily just wake up and do apart from your That's art stuff, art. you know, apart from the art? Were, were there other that things you were? It, 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 <laughs> it was, I like writing at the time. I, like, I still like writing sometimes. 
Okay. But I like writing and art, but now it was all about the art. I really wasn't interested. Well, social justice, I was interested in social justice issues. That was when I got involved with Amnesty International when I was about 15 or so and PETA. Um, so I was very involved in that during those years. Um, that was my husband and I, that was our first date was an Amnesty International event collecting signatures to pressure American corporations to divest from South Africa. So I was still very interested and, but I didn't really, um, what I had seen of the political injustice system, I didn't really see that being the avenue for me. Um, at one point I thought that I wanted to be an attorney. Um, but then I, I found out that innocent people were executed. <laughs> um, and that just blew my mind. And, um, so yeah, so art was, that was pretty much all I was interested in. So you, you, it was just for you, it was just art. But in all roads led back to art. <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of interests, but they all lead back to art. Yeah. Well, in, in terms of turning that into, uh, anyway, you, when you came out, like, when you finished school, um, um, uni and probably you got married, you know, and in terms of turning that into, into profit, you know, into, into business, you know, how, what, what were the things you talked about, you know, because it, it, it can be loving the artist is, is one thing and mm -hmm. making money from the act is another thing. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you know, so Absolutely. how did you, how did you marry, marry those two things together? Well, I started developing, uh, I didn't realize I, I wanted to be an art therapist. That was actually what I wanted to do when I was an art major. But there was only two schools that offered that. It was a really new thing back in those days. That's how old I am. Um, but it was a really new thing back in those days. So that being something I was interested in, when I started, um, when I found my way sort of wading into the world of consultancy and program development, that was where I started. So my first community development programs were for young people. And um, I was always interested in mental health. And so community mental health became something I looked at um, in terms of creating models, uh, developing sort of um, having a, a, a legitimate, you know, sort of basis for my programs, having them be anchored in like a model of something and, and actual mental health theories. And so expressive therapies was sort of like my inroad to bringing the arts in. And so when I lived in Georgia, um, there, you know, just some racial stuff is the community that we lived in was becoming more diverse. And mm -hmm. so the first program I created was a summer camp of the spirit. And so it was art projects that were structured um, around different guests that came in and would share some aspect of their culture uh, we had a Cherokee chief who came in and shared stories. We had some Japanese women that came and shared like the tea ceremony and taught them how to use, make it origami, some origami things. Um, so that thing, you know, we made them um, musical instruments. Uh, so it was that kind of bringing the arts in with, with youth programs initially. And then um, I developed a fatherhood initiative, uh, looking at how getting them to use, be, be more creative to express things that they didn't necessarily want to express, creating a support group component. And then instead of doing the needs assessment at the beginning to build a program, we use the art and the support group to understand the needs and build the trust. And then they reveal more of what their needs were. And then I built the program around that. And um, uh, that kind of led me into some political stuff that I, I really didn't <laughs> enjoy. So I had to like, you know, switch up again, you know, um, and then I had a coach who helped me. 
um, to art be took more of a back seat. It was part of my process of how I developed programs, but it wasn't something I necessarily shared in terms of the output of what I contributed to the group or to the client project. Um, it depended on whether or not they were open to that. And oftentimes it seemed too weird to people. So it wasn't something I really talked about. But meanwhile, I was developing this research framework using soul food as a metaphor for systemic change management, systemic community change management, and looking at how to develop that into something. Uh, I worked with a couple more coaches um, to turn that into um, a more of a product, I guess, a service product. And that's what the entire innovation system was based on. Yeah, for you, it was easier to use art, yeah, to to make like men or you know guys express themselves because I know and I know with guys we have this ego thing, you know, and we don't. Most guys probably wouldn't want to express yourself, you know, easily express yourself because they have right. like they have the macho thing. But for you, using art was the best way to do that, right? Well, I'm just making it like something really simple so that nobody's intimidated. So just something as simple as because um, I really like abstract modern art. And so I would show them an example of, at that time, I was really into text art. Um, and a lot of it was electronic, but we used post-it notes and just creating um, kind of like something abstract with different colored post-it notes um, and getting them to just write um, their reaction to different questions. So I would give them a prompt um, uh, about how they felt about uh, their baby's mother. Um, and then you would get like, funny thing, but which one? <laughs> <laughs> which one? Oh my God. <laughs> um, but it was like, it, it was cool because it wasn't about judging them. You know, yeah, it's like, I'm yeah. here to help you. Yeah. And um, we started out with, they asked me why I was doing it. And I shared with them about my history with my relationship with my father and the challenges that we had had and that we hadn't spoken in almost 20 years at that point. We hadn't spoken in, I think it was like 18. Um, and then I thought that um, I was looking to engage them as allies to be, uh, and that was, it was actually a re-entry program um, <laughs> for people who had previous justice system involvement, okay. but nobody wants to be defined by their biggest mistake. Yeah. And that's why we didn't talk about that. Um, that was kind of what qualified them, but that wasn't what we were there to address. It's aside from... Um, when I was building, uh, this program was part of a bigger project, but when I was developing that, one of the things I had uh, heard these really awful stories from the chaplains and people who worked in the system, in the prison system, um, and it was clear that these, these men were coming out with trauma that was not being addressed. And so I wanted to give them a safe place and connect them to mental health resources because this was also at the point when our community mental health system was being disbanded. And so there wasn't really like a mental health center that you could go to anymore if you were feeling depressed or whatever, but also realizing that their issues were connected to domestic violence, um, you know, um, not just homelessness uh, and, and the cycle of poverty, because many of these men have, have, were struggling with cycles of homelessness around like child support enforcement, for example. Um, many of them, that was the extent of their justice system involvement, was really about child support enforcement. And if they get locked up for 30 days, they lose their job, they lose their place, they may lose their car, you know, their whole lives unravel because of this. And 
the remedy that often people find is cohabitating with a new um, romantic partner. And sometimes kids come out of that. (laughs) (laughs) And so they wanted to break that cycle too. Yeah. Yeah. But but, what these guys you speak to, you know, did did they, did you, did you like have issues? Like, did they say things like, you know, maybe they were raised by a single parent and that's why, you know, they, they didn't really do things right. You know, was there, was there any link with that? They talked, many of them did talk about how they didn't have an example but then um, before we could get to that, there was the issues with the, 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 the co-parent <laughs> um, and, and dealing with that because their more immediate issue was around child support enforcement and difficulties dealing with the former partner or the child's mother. Mm-hmm. And so we did, um, oh gosh, uh, mediation training. Mediation training has been shown to reduce recidivism by almost 90%. And that's really about learning how to communicate. And that made a huge difference. That was one of the things that they all talked about because they were able to communicate with them in a way that the things didn't escalate. They learned about how to communicate without blame and how to like stay on point. Um, and that made such a big difference in their lives. But through the support group, I didn't manage that part. We had um, uh, a clinical social worker who did the support group. So that was like the confidential bit. But yeah, many of them talked about not having um, good examples growing up around domestic violence. And so one of the things we did was have people come in who had been saved by uh, saved by their uh, biological father from an abusive situation, living with uh, the parent that had custody and maybe their boyfriend was abusing them and fathers who came in and saved their kids to give them... Um, a different narrative, you know, and, and part of what I was there to teach them was how not to keep living the old narrative, how to envision what a new narrative for their life could be. So we had entrepreneurial development, um, educating them about different resources, father resources, because that was the beginning of the fatherhood movement. So connecting them with resources online. Um, we got some computer equipment donated. Uh, to, and I showed them how to go online and how to access these resources to empower them. I talked to judges about considering their, um, participation in the program in, uh, when they came to court and to maybe not send them to jail. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at what, at what point did you, did you say to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn this into a business? Like I'm going to like, you know, start turning this into something big, something else. Well, okay. So again, all roads lead to art for me. So business and within the framework that I was working was an ingredient in um, something bigger. So um, business was always an ingredient. So when I was doing that, uh, I, that was the beginning of, I don't know if I had Web Anthropon yet. Yes, I did. That was the beginning of Web Anthropon. So that was one side. I really wanted to develop this tech side of CRM strategy and getting these nonprofits engaged in using um, uh, at that time, was it like software as a service? Is what mm-hmm. it was called back then. Um, and that was the beginning of video conferencing and all of that, and trying to get people to use those tools. That was like pulling teeth, but that didn't work. So that was my that was supposed to be like the business side that was supposed to make the money. Um, the consulting bit that I was doing. One of the ways um, that I got people to sign on was I would do consulting trades to get them to offer their services to my program without me paying them to do it. 
<laughs> so I was like, what, what are your issues? I would, you would need this assessment mm-hmm. with partnering organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons for that was the first grant that I got for this program required me to work with a specific individual and organization. And um, it was somebody I did not want to work with. And I had made the strategic decision because I saw something bigger that I wanted to build with what I was doing. So I, my part of that money was held in escrow and I did not pay myself. And so I made these other consulting deals where it's like, okay, I'll do give you a 50% discount in exchange for you doing this thing, this program with my guys. And so that was kind of how I was doing things. And that was a project that was um, positioned to, you know, um, I had almost $900,000 in funding at the table wow. when the person that I was forced to work with embezzled um, the money and the whole thing sort of fell apart. That must have been very, like, devastating for you. Uh, oh, devastating is an understatement. Um, but that's what brought me fully online. That was when I just totally withdrew. My grandmother died um, like a, a little bit after that. So that was also. So I, for about a year, I think I just was in, you know, a shell. And when I started looking at um, the company at that point, I was doing like copy. I would do like uh, SEO copywriting. Because um, <laughs> that was, again, the very early days of search engine optimization. Yeah. And initially, I thought, like, you know, that's easy work, but eventually it became very boring. And then as, um, uh, as more people got involved in that, I would have to do topics that I wasn't really interested in. It was fun when I was doing things that were in line with what I was interested in. Because uh, I was also doing, um, I got some grants to do, again, with the research, open software, open source software. At that point was, you know, I'm looking at that as part of bridging the digital divide. I came online and organizations supported my research. So that was sort of the, the funding that kept things moving, um, building those relationships, participating with other people's research. And that got me more involved in art based research. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, had to go back to the coaches. I got a new coach. Um, <laughs> Because um, the first coach gave me the idea that I needed to create a system out of all of this research. Like, okay, Yvette, this is great information, but you need to teach people how to use it. And the problem was I really wasn't interested in doing that. I just wanted to do the research. Um, I did client projects with other people because I really didn't want to go get my own clients. So <laughs> I worked with people that I knew were interested in regional economic development um, and were looking at this uh, social responsibility angle and that was my specialization and i had a client from zimbabwe who wanted to do a jatropha plantation and jatropha was one of these plants they were very interested in as a biofuel source at that time india and, and south africa parts of south africa were just really focused on trying to develop that that as a sector and um as we were talking he said slaves i was like oh hold on hold on um, did you just say slave? So when you say plantation, you mean like a slave plantation? And he did. Um, and he didn't understand why I was so shocked. And I pointed out that you're talking to the descendant of African slaves about a project to enslave people. Um, like, why do you, why, why are you wanting to do this? And he explained that he was a hedge fund. Um, yeah, he ran a hedge fund. And he explained how uh, he had this one page summary. These investors could sign on. 
because this is the best way to make it profitable and keep the overhead low. And I was like, what if I can show you a different way to do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, still make it profitable. And so that was, I, I presented him with a different strategic plan and educated him about different strategies that you can use to uplift the community um, and do inclusive economics and address some of the challenges that the region and the community are facing in your project. Um, and he said it changed, you know, changed his whole world view. Um, so that was like a powerful sort of incentive to, um, they gave me some insight about what my niche might be. I think before I didn't really, uh, I wasn't as focused on my niche. And I think that really put me on a path of, um, that's my specialization. That's what I'm really good at. So showing him how to use like permaculture in your, um, design of, you know, your property, not thinking of it as a plant. But think of it as, as a community yeah. <laughs> and having community housing that actually met needs, having um, using uh, aquaponics, for example, to bring in hydroponics. There was some deforestation issues, you know, it's a landlocked area. So using deforestation, looking at the deforestation issue, um, you could, and also the pest issue, which brings in a lot of pesticides and things like that. But if you use a greenhouse, Type build, you know, enclosed facility, hydroponics, not as dependent on the rain. Use aquaponics, give the fish, the waste from the fish, giving fertilizer, the fish, help address the food security issue, food insecurity issue, and also the enclosed, enclosure, enclosed growing spaces would allow for more um, diversity in terms of what they, actually more crop diversity in terms of what they were growing and pointing out some of the advantages and like the floral market because of the, you know, temperatures. Well, we can grow like flowers all year long. And so anyway, so just presented. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I guess, and I guess this, this, this must have been, you know, challenging for you in some, in some way, you know. And I know that you believe in transforming any challenge, you know, into a launch pad for success, right? You know. Right. So yeah. So what, what, what was most challenging for you, you know, in the course of your journey, you know, from school? Now you, you know, you mentoring people, you speaking to people, and you know, trying, trying to change them and turn them into, into, into the other side, which, which is a good side, of course, you know. What, what was the most challenging thing for you, you know, that you that, that you can point out? Dealing with my own shortcomings in a productive way. <laughs> um, uh, focusing on one of the things that I do, I don't try to change people who don't want to change. Um, I'm too old for that. I know too much. Um, I'm interested in people who want to change, but mm-hmm. don't know how to do it. Yep. And just are looking for assistance. Um, that's one, getting that lesson um, um, also, I mean, and dealing with racism, that's been a big challenge my whole life, figuring out how to deal with that in a way that, uh, did not, that did not define me by it. I did not want to be defined by racism yep. and developing, uh, understanding. I mean, one of the things I taught my children was that race is not a real thing. It's a social political construct. What I mean when I identify as a black woman is I am speaking to a cultural heritage, um, that I claim. And I recognize the wisdom and the creativity in that, and that's why my framework is called social, because I think that perfectly embodies. Um, I call it an intellectual wisdom tradition. But, uh, oh, oh, about the guns. So everybody I know has guns, but we have like um, some kids like broke into some cars in our neighborhood, and they stole 33 guns just out of the cars. Um, and so when things, you know, got sort of seated, 
it seemed uh, like an unsafe place and I thought maybe I should have a gun. Um, I don't have a gun yet, but um, I did go get a gun from it. So, and I, something about that made me feel better. Um, and then Martin Luther King Day was coming up and I had a chance to really think about um, my commitment to nonviolence. So it's, um, I would say like that would be an unexpected choice, but, and, and like I said, when we started out talking, I was talking about the journalist talking about us having fight in us. And it's like, I think I, I have a lot of fight in me. I think I've fought most of my life. Um, you know, it took a long time to fight see. But, um, I guess I would prefer not to think of it that way, but what if that is the reality? You know, what if that is where we are? And when you look at the history of, of our country, um, after the Civil War with Reconstruction, what did you have? You had this kind of reaction, you know? So the fact that we've never really dealt with it is why I think we're here and so it has to be dealt with. But I think accountability has a lot to do with that. And the passion that this happens is no accountability. Yeah. So I think like being, and anyway, to answer your question, just being, making peace with all of that, you know, it's how you maintain your own peace because I think that the lack of peace in the world is a reflection of our individual lack of peace. As an artist researcher, you know, you know, and I, I know that, you know, you, you have to keep yourself motivated and you have to be also keep engaged as well. You know, what really motivates you? You know, how, how do you stay creative? Um, come and hanging out in the studio, listening to music, like music, that helps. That keeps me motivated. The need in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing that keeps me from giving up. Um, after, you know, that, that first big project blew up, like I, that was really devastating. Because I really built that project with this premise that if I demonstrate that I mean I'm trustworthy and I can build a trust coalition, and then um, to have that not work and somebody like sort of you know screw me over, um, it's like wow, okay, uh, what do I take from that? So I think the need in the world, and now with the Cure from Racism um, project that I'm launching with Lead the World, um, definitely that was born out of the need. Um, cause empowered innovation is about transforming challenges after challenge. So I created uh, a master class focused on that. Cool, cool, cool. But if you were, <clears throat> if, 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 if you had to go back in time, you know, go back yeah. in time, you know, would, would, would you, would you change anything? Like, no, you, no, you wouldn't, you no. wouldn't change anything, right? <laughs> no, um, no, because I really think that business can be a force of change in the world. That's why I look at business as an ingredient. It's yeah. an important ingredient in the solution to the problem that we face. And so um, it makes me very mindful of that. And no, I wouldn't change anything. It all made me who I am. So if I like who I am, I would change it. Cool, cool, cool. Nice one. Right? <laughs> yeah, that, now this leads me to my next question, which, which, is, which is branding, you know. Staying who you are and staying true to your game, staying true to your craft as well, you know. Now, when it comes to branding, I know branding, there's personal branding, there's business branding, you know, how do you, how do you brand yourself? How do you make yourself different? You know, how do you differentiate yourself from the rest of people doing the same thing you're doing? Um, well, I don't know anybody doing exactly what I'm doing <laughs> the way I do it. That's one thing. Yeah. So that's yeah. part of my branding yep. is, um, one of the things I would tell people is find your niche and do it in a way that makes it impossible for somebody to be your competition. Yeah. To copy, right? Right. Um, so that's one because I've had projects and ideas get stolen, but, um, the first time it happened, I literally fainted. Um, but, 
You know, so, so sometimes I, I won't say that it's interesting because someone might take your idea and and they will, and they will make it better, and you'll be like, "Oh my god, no, why nobody's ever made it better ever, <laughs> ever." And that is what gives me. Um, that's part of what motivates me. You know, it's like um, you couldn't come up with anything original on your own and had to steal mine. I come up with ideas, fifty ideas of that. So, but you take that one because you didn't do it right. I can still do it. It will be unrecognizable because I will do it better. Um, and then if somebody takes something, there was one, a hotel thing. And uh, I was really bummed about that because I didn't have the money to just go and open up the hotel. I was, you know, that was part of a community redevelopment project. Um, but I, I say like, do it. Being authentic is a big thing. I think like being authentic and, as somebody who was told I was weird pretty much my whole life, um, as we got older, those same people, many of them came back and apologized because they realized, like, you were so right. You figured out at 15 what I didn't get until I was 35. Um, and that was, like, great vindication. And so I stopped listening to what everybody else was saying I needed to do about branding. Like, as an example, I remember doing um, I was at a retreat with one of my coaches and um, one of the execs that was there. Uh, talked about my jewelry and said, I shouldn't wear this sort of jewelry. Like my look was distracting. And I decided if my look is distracting you from what I'm saying, that sounds like a personal problem. And maybe I'm not the person for you and you're not the person for me. So I am not going to change who I am um, to like, you know, be less distracting for you. Um, that, anyway, so I think like that, that kind of, that's who I am. You know what I mean? Like that is, that's authentic for me. And yeah. recognizing that when my mother told me she saw my father in me and that was what she pointed to was that aspect of my personality, it really helped me own it. And I realized that my branding has to be about that. Um, I do most of my live video stuff from here uh, because people used to complain about my backdrop or my outfit was clashing with the box on the shelf. And um, It's like, dude, if you know me, I am so not into that. Like, no. We're not doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's no need for you to be all fancy. Just, just be yourself. Stay true to your game, you know. And, and the world will take it. you, take you, take you the way you are, you That's know. It. And I, I can see some, some, some paintings there, some artwork behind you there. Do you, do, do you exhibit them? Do you go to exhibitions? And I, I know now that the world is short now, but you know, did you ever like get people out to see them? How, how do you, how do you make people see your stuff? Um, these are my personal pieces. I don't. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Even when I'm on camera. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't do that anymore. I used to, obviously, I used to as an artist. I used to travel and, you know, try to get galleries to host my openings and things like that. Um, but now I've decided it's a part of this bigger work, a part of my, let's call it my active faith, that this work is going to pan out. Mm -hmm. um, that it will make a dent and maybe the cure for racism would be the thing that does it. Um, it'll increase the value of my original. So no. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's nice, man. So someday you, 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 you're planning that someday someone would just say, you know, if it, I like that, art, you know, I want to pay a million bucks for it. Like, <laughs> um, a million bucks. I probably would talk about that. Well, I do use it also in my book. Like I have a new book coming out okay. it's about the cure for racism. Okay. That'll be out the end of February. Okay. Um, so using the artwork in that to kind of, cause some of this relates to things um, that, that are in there. And like the, this piece in particular was one I uh, did the night after I watched the George Floyd murder. Okay. And um, this was one I did that week, later that week. 
um, after I'd done a systemic constellation workshop. And so this painting is something I painted over because I felt that it was with my, my husband and I, my husband is, is white and um, we were married for 20 years before our parents met. Wow. And uh, the painting was that, that was, was, was any reason for that? Racism. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, the painting underneath that is a painting I did that night. And um, after I, I covered it up because I felt like I was done with that chapter of my life. Um, they're not a part of my life anymore. And I, I was painting over it. And then the George Floyd thing happened. And I came in with acrylic paint and acetone. And that's what I did. I listened to music all night. I, I drank. Um, I had a good bottle of whiskey. <laughs> um, uh, God, man. I know. I, I, know. I cried. <laughs> I know. And I I, I know. He's, um, he's, I, I know. I know. Racism is a very, what I say is a very deep topic. You know, because some people tend to shy away from it. You know, um, living in the UK for quite, for quite some time now. You know, I I, I can also re, I can also like see that, recognize that. You know, and I know before the. Before the George Floyd thing, yeah, America, I, I, I've been to the US couple of states, you know, and, and I, and I, I didn't really like, I didn't really see that. But after the George Floyd thing, I, I, and I saw that, you know, America was, I don't know, it was just so different to me, you know. What can I say? If you came here and people heard the way you talk, they're not going to treat you the same. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's part of it. But if they don't hear the way you talk, it very much depends on where you are. Because I have not been harassed by police alone. But when in the early days when my husband and I were first together, we used to get pulled over and they would want to know what our relationship was. We had a few who asked to see our ID. <laughs> um, yeah. But my brother, seeing what my brother, my cousin have gone through, and that is very painful when you see somebody you love and they've been, you know, um, roughed up, you know, they've got bruises and things. Um, and especially when there was no they shouldn't have been arrested to begin with. You know what I mean? Like just as an example, my brother had a girlfriend, she started breaking things. And when the police came, they arrested him, but it was his apartment and she was there breaking things. You see what I'm saying? But she was white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, um, yes. There's always that favorism, you know, even if I don't, well, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's a very, very deep thing, you know, and, and I, and for you, just, just a quick one. Do you ever think, you know, racism will go someday or something that we're, we're just going to live with? Okay. President Biden said something that I found that related to what I've been thinking and why I decided to do the cure for racism. Because at first I, I did it as a, a presentation for a couple of groups and the, the response was disappointing. Um, but he said, we just need enough of us, enough of us to do the work. And then that will bring the rest of us along. And I think that that is true. So a big part of um, the foundation of, of what my approach is that we don't do, we start out talking about racism. I explain um, I give people a different way of understanding racism, again, as an ingredient. Um, it's a poisonous ingredient. It's toxic, but it's not in the air and it's not in the soil. So it's not in the food that we're eating. Um, the only way, way that racism shows up is when people bring it as an ingredient that's a part of them. And so the only solution, and I'm speaking to people who want to be allies, is to take on that responsibility, the people who are benefiting from racism, 
to learn how to remove that toxic, that toxic ingredient from the ingredient of self, because self is the thing that you bring to everything that you see, everything you create, and everything that you um, experience. And so systemic racism and institutional racism persists because a lot of people's wealth and success depend on it. So if we can get enough people to redefine success in a way that includes impact, and so that's what that's what it's about. That's what I teach people. Nice man, awesome man. But what would you what, what would you tell the what, what would you tell the younger you? Oh wow! <laughs> Don't be so fucking nice. You know, I'm sorry to curse, but um, that's what I would tell her. <laughs> um, I think that in the beginning, I was. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say wasted, but I, I can see that there was a lot of doubt um, because of, I'm going to say the conditioning of racism. Um, it was very ingrained in me to have to prove myself. Um, and I got a lot of resentment from that. Uh, I remember doing presentations and some people were, felt that I was trying to show that I was the smartest person in the room. And, um, if you feel like an idiot, how is that my fault? Yeah. It's not, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm presenting my project, but um, as an example of what I'm saying about the conditioning was the, at this point, the, the program with the men was going on. It was working. I was, you know, they were saying it was changing their lives. It was changing their relationships. These men were becoming like, you know, volunteer, classroom volunteers. They're coaching, you know, T-ball. You know, they're engaged with their kids. There was a co-parenting um, class component as well. And so I, I felt like I was in this and it was not about me. It wasn't about my ego. So uh, we met with um, some folks from uh, Bank of America, some Bank of America trustees. And after the meeting, um, my client came back and told me that he had called me an uppity negress. And um, I was not sure how to take that. I mean, I knew how to take it, but how to respond. Um, and I was like, well, fuck them. I don't want their money. So I was like, I don't, I don't have to talk to them anymore. So we went to a different bank foundation. But the way that that changed me was I said, okay, fine. I, the men didn't like it when I spoke first. When they would ask something about the project, because it was my project, I had written a proposal, I would answer the question. Um, but that made people uncomfortable. So uh, my client would refer to me. He would defer to me. He would say, um, that's a great question. Let me have uh, Mrs. Dubell answer that. And then I would answer. Yeah. But, but, so, but, but when, he, when, when he said that, did you, did you like, did you like make complaints and, or you, or you just, oh, you he didn't just, say it to me. Okay. He didn't say it to my face. Um, I mean, who are you going to complain to? Nobody gave a crap. You know, it's like nobody cared. He said it in a room full of people. Like nobody said, oh, you shouldn't say that. You know, I don't know what they said in response, but um, I don't think anybody shut it down. Not even my client like stood up for me and said anything. And so that was sort of typical. Um, there was a proposal I had worked on and I had partnered with this other organization. I got up to make a phone call. My, my grandfather was missing that day. And so I got up to make a phone call. While I was gone, they announced that they had gotten a grant, a $300,000 grant for the proposal I had written. And they waited till I left the room. I came back. Nobody said a thing. Wow. And one of the per- people that was supposed to have been a friend of mine told me like that night. She called me that night and told me. But nobody said anything at that time when I could have addressed it and called her out on it. 
um, other people who had given me letters of support to go in the proposal. Nobody said a thing and her board of directors didn't care. Um, so, you know, <laughs> so I would tell the younger me, don't be so nice. I would have cut that stuff off the leg, like from the get go. But back then I didn't have the same confidence. I was young. I was younger than everybody I was dealing with. Um, so I was just trying to get my ideas taken seriously. And I remember meeting with a senator who was really frank. He's like, I think you got something really good here. I can't understand what you're talking about, but I'm going to get you in front of somebody who does. And then that person warned me that they're not going to do with this what you think they're going to do. If they sent you to me, they're going to put you with the Department of Defense. (laughs) (laughs) And that wasn't what I was thinking. Um, So I had to switch gears again. So I think like definitely don't be afraid to adapt. Um, that's one of the biggest things that I've seen with small businesses. And when COVID hit, I kept thinking about all these small businesses and organizations that I tried to get to adapt to this technology. Of course, that was more than like 15, 14 years ago, about 14 years ago. But if they had even started back then, they would have been so far ahead of the curve. Um, but that, that resistance to adopt new technology, to explore it, that I felt like was something that got in the way of small businesses. And initially, that was what my business I was trying to focus on, but I just couldn't get them to come around. And so that's what I was saying about trying to change somebody. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. P- people don't, most people don't like change, you know. Ch- change, is, right. is, ch- change is foreign, you know. Change is alien to them. So they tend to just, you know, stick to the old ways of doing things. Uh, and, and like you rightly said, you know, COVID came along and, and everybody started, you know, doing things, you know, something you probably learn takes six months to do. You want to do it under a week, which is not possible. You know, it's, it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on how you work. I mean, I have a really flexible schedule. I don't do nine to five. Uh, my daughter was teasing me earlier tonight about making people schedule calls with me. She's like, you're going to, she's like, mom, that's weird. <laughs> but it's because, um, Think about how much time you can waste during the day just answering phone calls. You know, if your friends are calling you and everything, if my mother calls, my kids call, that's different. But in general, I don't, you know, my friends know not to call me during the day. Um, I, I have to keep, stay open for inspiration. Um, and I don't like that kind of work. You know, I don't like working a nine to five. That's why I don't have a job. <laughs> I know, I know it's difficult for, for, for some of us, have, we've, I've got a nine to five job, you know, and I know, and I, and I know that I, I can do more, you know, instead of just being there and COVID just showed that, you know, you don't have to be in a box. You don't have to be in an office to actually, you know, be creative or, or be productive as well. You know, yeah. you, you can, you, you can do that from, from anywhere. You know, so hopefully now a lot of companies will see that, you know, you, you don't really need to come to, to come to the office Monday to Friday. You can probably come once a week or twice a week and do the rest from home or whatever. You know, right. I, I, I hope, I hope, I hope they will see that. But obviously after COVID, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of companies will say, come on, get back, get back to the office. <laughs> well, sure, a lot are going to realize that it's cost effective though. You know, yeah, it is, it is. Taller space. Um, but another thing related to the nine to five, like I've had a few nine to fives. I didn't keep them long. I'm not a great employee. The best one though, was they let me work three hours at three hour break. And then I worked for three hours that worked. Um, but most jobs don't let you do that. 
Um, but I was going to say, like, when you are having to juggle, like achieving your goals or working towards some goal and you do have to have like a nine to five or you're raising kids or whatever it is or some kind of caretaker or whatever. One of the things that did has helped and I continue to use it that helps me to stay focused on my goals is um, I call it my top three. So I have my top three for the day and my top three for the week. So those are your three things that you are absolutely going to get done before your head hits the pillow. Okay. Um, and sometimes uh, yesterday, I didn't, well, not yesterday, day before yesterday, I stayed up all night because I didn't get those three done, things done. And so they carried over and I had to get them done. So the three things a day, because that way you're not overwhelmed. Um, and all of those don't have to be towards your goal, but they all need to be in align with your values. I call that applied aligned action. And then you have three a week. So three a day is too much. You can use the three a day to help you focus on like, let's say it's like personal, self-care, your family, your business, right? And so you pick one from each of those today and it can be something really small and then three actions a week and can use the same thing. Yeah, so that's one way to do it and not get overwhelmed. And at the end of the year, I have like post-it notes. I don't have them in here. But at the end of the year, I burn them in the fire pit because I celebrate. Like this is the evidence of all the things that I got accomplished this year. And yeah, so, yeah, and you set, and you set yeah, and you, and you set new goals, right? Yeah, always, um, <laughs> always. So I mean, it makes you look at um, aging different. I do that. That's part of my birthday celebration. And so you look at aging different instead of looking at, I got older, it's like, look at all the stuff I did this year. Look at all the, the work I put towards my goals. And then you can look at where you are and, you know, celebrate that. And like, now, how do I get where I need to go? Um, you know, for the next leg of this and start mapping that out. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what would you, what would you want your legacy to be, to, to look like? I'd love it if I got, if I cured racism. I mean, that'd be big. <laughs> That's that's such a hot topic everywhere, man. Trust me. Um, if I even made a dent in it, if I made enough of a dent in it to make a big difference, I'd be really happy with that. Um, I, I I guess when I think about my legacy, I tend to think about like the people that know me. You know, like my husband, I want to be like a good wife. I'd like my kids to remember me as a good mom, um, be a good daughter, a good sister, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, I guess I'd like, for people to, um, I don't, I, I guess I don't want to think about it so much in terms of like the ego thing, like of what I want people to think about me as much as what I want to leave behind. And so I want to leave behind a body of work that helps really advance understanding of community change and better models for community change that are community led. Um, cause it's really about bottom up innovation and how do you empower that? Yeah. Um, cause I call what I teach personal innovation. That's basically what I think is a cure for um, racism and all the other isms, really. Yeah, um, nice one, Yvette, man. It's been it's been nice, man. But if someone listen to this, you know, and do you want to guess take something away from this? You know, what would be that one thing you want them to take away from this conversation? Don't listen to people tell you that something can't be done. It just means they don't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, easy, easy. It's true, man. Because you know the the, the guys that can do things will tell you, oh, it can't be done. It's never been done. But definitely, all you, all you need to do is just to try, man. You just try. You, you never you never know where that will take you. But you know you just try um when i had the idea of making this whole art-based solution artist solution the basis of what i was doing nobody thought that that made any sense and it seemed completely nuts and 
Um, the art market was clearly changing. But again, that whole issue of innovating, artists have to innovate. You have to look at how you can apply that creativity. Um, there's a definition of creative of innovation on my website that um, innovation is creativity with a job to do. So artists have to get more innovative about how to apply their creative talents to meet a need, an existing need that may not be directly related to your art, you know, people buying your art. Um, so anyway, reach out to me. I'll brainstorm it with you. We're going to be doing um, some hot seat things with uh, entrepreneurs. Where I'll give them three takeaways uh, to help them work through a challenge or get their idea moving. Cool, cool. Nice one, man. It's been an amazing conversation, man. And I, and I love, love, loving every bit of it. You know, if guys want to get in touch with you, you know, Yvette, you know, where's the best place for them to get in touch with you? Uh, social media handles? Um, yeah, I mean, you, under my name, I'm on most platforms. I'm new to TikTok, so are you? Are you? on TikTok? Everybody said TikTok is for is for is for kids and stuff, but I think TikTok is getting busier now. Well, you know what? I had like in one day three different people that said you need to be talking on TikTok about this stuff, and I was like, really? <laughs> I'm like, you really should. So I was like, all right. Um, so kicking off Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, birthday, 40 Days of Service is a project I do with Me the World. That was part of the launch of the Cure for Racism. So mm-hmm. I did my first TikTok post announcing that and talking about peace. I'm going to be doing a series about um, what do you, what does peace as a practice mean? Like, what does that require? How do you do it? And try and make it funny. I found some funny things that I think I'm going to react to and stitch mine so that people know I'm not like super uptight and serious, even though I talk about serious stuff. <laughs> nice one nice one it's been nice man you know love what you're doing you know you're doing an amazing job you know and i and i also want to thank you for thank you for the time as well you know and i'm grateful for every bit of it you know giving me your time you know i, I know it's priceless you know but I'm, I'm happy you know you came on the show <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me and you're doing important work too you're like supporting entrepreneurs they need that yeah, you know, yeah. that voice of calm using your dj voice <laughs> 